when you're building a company, if you don't have the brand values, you'll attract whomever. And when you do set those brand values, if you do that work, you'll attract those people in your recruitment process who you'll just immediately get along with because their values align with the brand's values and your company's values. And so when they do come aboard, it's just that much easier for them to be their whole self and be self-expressed because they're fully aligned. And thus, your organization will just run way more fluid, way more efficiently. Hi, and welcome to Greater Than. Here you'll listen to conversations with business leaders on how they build remarkable businesses, putting values to work for their organization and their customers. I'm Lauren Sinrake, a systems thinker and design strategist, principal of Whole Innovation and Design, and host of this podcast. I'm here today with Nate Nichols, creative director of creative agency and production house, Palette Group, and all-around phenomenal human. I'm really excited to be here with you today, Nate. Hey, really excited to be here with you too. It's been a minute. Yeah, it's been a while. So I know all about you, uh, but why don't you take a moment to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do at Palette Group and uh, your journey getting there? Mm, Cool. So who am I? I am a brother from Connecticut originally, uh, son of a Jamaican woman and a Haitian dude. And then from Connecticut, I moved to Philadelphia to go to art school for graphic design. And I graduated with a design degree, which was fun and also felt like a very expensive hobby. Um, And the whole time through college, I pretty much just hustled and grinded my ass off to ensure that I had some work to show off when I graduated and really flex that I had this desire and fire to create and build campaigns that were meaningful and not just another thing that someone did. And I think that burning desire is still with me today uh, as the founder and creative director of Palette Group. And so I just kind of love humans and ensuring that they feel like they have the right time and space to be themselves and be fully self-expressed. That's sort of like my mission and my ethos is like, how do I ensure people feel like they can be themselves and be fully self-expressed wherever they go? That's a great package. So you talked about this hunger and fire and desire to, to do campaigns that were meaningful. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of directions that you could take a graphic design degree, but you decided to take it in a campaign direction. Tell us a little bit about your decision to, to take it that way and, and why you felt like that was the most impactful uh, way of applying your, your design and your creativity skills. For sure. I think design was always a means to being self-expressed when I first started when I was 16. I think I was very much so alone and self-conscious and insecure in high school. And I felt like I didn't have anybody, family, I didn't feel like I had friends. And so the only way for me to feel like I had an identity and validated in it was when I designed. I had the really, really cool MySpace in high school. (laughs) I would put Carter Three on, Little Wayne, and just bang it and knock through designs while you know, just trying to maintain a healthy 
outlook on life, you know, because high school was pretty challenging in my house. My mother, you know, she has a disability, um, a mental disability. So it was challenging to have a relationship with her. My father, he doesn't exist. I don't know him. I haven't met him a day in my life. And so, uh, you know, where I I felt actually home, at home was at a foster home. And so for me, designing was where it started. And from there, I just took this platform that design gave me to maneuver my way into other areas of creativity. And so in high school, I also met a clothing designer and this was the first mentor I had. And he, he had a clothing line and did graphic design, he did mural arts all around the city. And so I met him at a cash register I worked at, at Whole Foods. Found out he had this awesome boutique and he had this like legend aura in the city that I grew up in, Norwalk. And he was just that dude. And him and his brother had the dope clothing line in the 70s and they tagged the walls up and they were just the coolest of the cool. And they're like the next step into understanding my identity as a creative uh, because they allowed me into the creative space of a clothing designer and retail and small business. Uh, and for me, design, again, it was just a mechanism, it was a platform, and it just was the start to finding where I wanted to truly exist as a creative. And I always felt that there was this desire to also be an entrepreneur, and I couldn't resist that urge. I always felt like I enjoyed the thrill of selling and pitching as much as I enjoyed the creative process. Like, there's an equitable blend. And... However, I obsess over the idea of being an entrepreneur to the point where functionally, I enjoy the idea of designing operational systems and taking a step away from roles to ensure that someone's in place that truly is passionate and believes 100%, not like mixed like I am, like I'm all over the place, like slash entrepreneur, slash creative director, slash art director, slash director. The definition of a multi-hyphenate, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. No, I want to make sure, you know, we're a platform for the person who truly, genuinely, 100% believes that they are a producer, they are a art director, they are a designer, they are a photographer, or if they are like, you know, hyphenated or slashed, that there is a, a quality level that makes sense for them in that role. And so I admire that side of my brain as much as I do the creative side. And so the design was just a starting point for me to like, navigate my way to this point of like being a creative entrepreneur. So with Palette Group, you've done a number of great campaigns and projects recently. Can you tell us about one or two of your favorite ones that really felt like they struck that right balance for you between the creativity and the entrepreneurship and the platform for others to to really express themselves and that, that authenticity you seek out? For sure, for sure. There are two projects I stuck out over the past two year i would say and so the first project i want to share is a project with sax sax underwear is based in vancouver and they're this dope underwear brand that literally metaphorically and figuratively supports men's balls (laughs) (laughs) i'm actually familiar with the brand uh i see them around here in boulder a lot (laughs) yeah and so they're really great and like the best underwear ever i don't know how or any other type of underwear ever in life (laughs) <laughs> and so they basically, I met a dude who had a podcast and he had a project lined up with this underwear brand and they wanted to produce a series about men talking about masculinity, which is a very touchy-feely taboo type of topic right now. And I was just like, 
all right, if we're going to do this and you wanted to make it a six, uh, six theme minutes, we're going to have to be very intentional about how we shoot it, how we produce it. It has to just feel cool and it has to be real and like raw and honest. And so that's where like the fun part of it is. Like, how do you sell this taboo-esque content to a brand who is riding on people feeling like the brand and the content resonates with them, right? And if this doesn't resonate with a certain set of people, like it's going to rub them the wrong way and they're not going to be able to make the money they expect to make from this. And that's the part. It's like, oh, wow, that's a that's one hell of a challenge to try to like, sell that and produce it both, like make people happy and then like get people to buy in. Very, very challenging. And so we were able to sell it because they wanted it, fortunately. Like they were just like, we're already into this. We want to do this. We don't care how many people we offend. And the topics were like porn and you know, uh, dating and fatherhood. And we just had a lot of creative agency to just like curate humans that had very dynamic lives and stories. This one gentleman, Daniel Saint, he run, ran New York's largest underground sex club, NSFW, uh, and it's constantly featured in like Playboy and GQ and just like an awesome dude. He was an ex-Jehovah's Witness and now he runs a sex club in New York. Sounds like a fascinating human. Such a fascinating human, like just bold and brilliant. And, you know, this type of content, again, this type of person, first off, like people are going to be offended by this, that this person exists. You know, I'm a black dude in America. I know that my presence, people are offended by it because that's just how America is right now. And it's just shitty and has always been. But so I'm thinking about like how this person's definitely going to have a presence that's going to be polarizing for people because he is ex-Jehovah's Witness and he's not afraid to talk about it. He's bisexual. He's not afraid to talk about it. He's talking, he, he like walks people through how to, how to talk through consent for their first sex party. It's like such a brilliant and precious mind. And of course, I want to share and be a platform for someone with that experience, that life experience and that represents so many people in that community. And so that's one of the like, most amazing projects I've worked on. It's sort of a privilege to be able to work on creative and produce stuff like that. That feels like life's work. Hmm. You know, I've struggled with my identity, you know, as a black person in America, you know, as a person with no parents, as a person with foster care, you know, having to design my whole life from scratch in a whole new city. And so I know what it means to have to design and interpret your, your own self in real time. Yeah. So to be a platform for that type of person, um, just feels like life's work because that's kind of what I've been doing my whole life is trying to piece myself together. Yeah, that's incredible. And it, it kind of comes back to the both sides of the coin of being a platform for people to express themselves on the one side for the people who are doing the production on the projects with you and things. But on the other side, these viewpoints and identities that you're um, helping to bring out into the light that's not necessarily considered mainstream or right. uh, what most people are used to seeing and hearing. Right. So it sounds like Sax was on board for for this, but you know, I've heard you, you know, you were talking about how this had to be real, raw and honest, and I've heard you use this term unfiltered as like a as a really critical lens for the work that you do. And as you're exploring projects with with brands, how do you how do you kind of navigate that balance and and make sure that you stay true to those truths that you can bring out into the world? Hmm. Such a fun question. And the easiest way to answer it is I just don't. <laughs> the fact that we are positioned the way we are filters people through anyway. The fact that like it says unfilter 
your imagination as soon as you step to our website and you scroll down and you see a series about questioning the rules of men, <laughs> you're just like, oh, I get these guys. Okay. <laughs> so it's sort of like a self-filtration system. You know, that's the beauty of branding is once you like, if you're really true to yourself and your values, you'll be able to create messaging and language and creative that represents that position and those values. So people look at you and they experience you in a way that you don't have to talk anymore. One of my mentors always said, Nate, who you are should be so loud, you don't have to say a thing. And that just made so much sense to me. So much sense to me as like a 19-year-old kid running through Philadelphia. That was like, oh, if I want to be taken seriously, I need to you know, talk the part, dress the part, walk the part, and be the part. And from there, it'll just be self-expression. And so what we've been able to do is sort of create a brand that represents a core set of values that people resonate with, that attract them. And it just comes down to like, we're only going to have those ideas that challenge the status quo, period. And if you're not looking for those and you need something more simple, then we're not the shop for you. Nobody on my team is the shop for you, you know, like just period. We're just going to think different in a way that's going to be highly imaginative and highly honest. And that's sort of what unfiltered means though. It's it's honest, it's raw, it's sometimes gritty if that's the range you want to go for. And it's true. Do you think over time has this gotten easier for you? You know, earlier in your career, was it was it something you had to navigate more, or is this just something that's always worked for you? Mm, I think it we kind of landed here. My first contract out of college was with a multi-million dollar campaign with Hyundai. So I went to a recruiter and I just sold her on all this digital marketing stuff that I was able to do. I sold her all the design stuff. And so she got me on this multi-million dollar campaign with Hyundai and I was managing their social media presence. From that campaign on, I was just in love with the idea of 360 integrated campaigns and how dynamic you could get with your creative and the collaborations and the artist integrations, like they had partnered with Xbox and ASAP Rocky and Jeff Staples. So they had fashion, they had hip hop, they had tech. And I was just like, mind blown. So you can integrate all these different things into a campaign to sell a car. That campaign showed me that the things that I love are like music, hip hop, I'm into tech, like all these worlds were coming together on this campaign. And I'm like, oh, wow. So I wasn't just brought on this project just because I had this capacity to understand social. I was brought on this project because when they wanted people to tweet, they wanted my voice. They wanted the Nate Nichols voice. And I'll never forget having a meeting. This is, I, have, I forgot about this story. I'm so happy I'm thinking of it right now. <laughs> I don't do social media anymore, so it's a story I'll share. But when I did do social media, when back when we met, I would sit down with people doing social for our clients and they'd be speaking in a way that was like robotic and professional. And I'll never forget, you know, the senior vice president just telling me when I was sending tweets out from Hyundai, they were just like, yo, Nate, be you. Don't talk like how we talk. Talk like how you talk. We, we, we understand that you have a rhythm and rhyme that we can't access. That is very natural for you. So I, that's part of the reason why we hired you. And so all that did was create space for me to be like, oh, shit, I can be myself on a multi-million dollar campaign. So that means one day people will give me millions of dollars to be myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's the dream. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so 
that one that one conversation just let loose something in my brain unconsciously that I was like, oh, cool. There's something in me that is inherent that when I am self-expressed, there's value there. And so I didn't know how to hone in on that until probably 11 years after that because of my career trajectory. I didn't really go to a traditional agency after college. I didn't really know, like learn the systems of an advertising agency until 10 years after that project. And so for me, the idea of branding really became sticky, I'd say six or seven years ago. And by then, I just started Palette Group. And Palette Group wasn't as refined as it is now, but it was definitely it was definitely in a space where people recognize that this crew that is working in North Philadelphia on, you know, Thompson Six with this wickedly cool studio with red pipes bursting out the side of the building and crazy 10 foot glass window on the corner of it. And when you walk in, there's an awesome cement floor and those red pipes are coming through from the outside that these guys are different. Right. Mm. And so we, we took very like small steps to become slowly unfiltered. It's one thing to position a brand when you're trying to respond to noise out in the market it's another thing to create something creative and innovative that is relevant for the demand and need right now so you're saying you you just kind of uh you you had just started honing what that process looked like and how to do that how did you do that and and what was that like for you oh it was pretty fun i was in ido class (laughs) (laughs) it was pretty fun it was basically i had like a had an identity crisis a few years ago where I didn't know which seat I should sit on from uh, functioning in the agency because we had a bunch of art directors. We had one art director, but then we had a photographer who was also an art director. And we just like all these different things going on. And it wasn't like, it wasn't truly systematized. And I didn't know where I should fall. I was calling myself a CEO. I didn't know if I was a CEO really. I was just the thing I thought I was. And I stepped in it and I really just didn't do a great job. And so when, when I realized I wasn't doing a great job, I had an identity crisis. And the identity crisis came when, when at a time where everything was just kind of crashing down and I had spoken to a mentor. A mentor was like, yo, dude, here's a book on how to be a CEO. Um, it's called Traction. And then I started really, really understanding that, you know, to really design a, a shop, an agency, you really need to know what it means to be a business owner be a CEO and if that's for you step into it if not don't but also ensure that when you do design a business structure that there are values brand values and that's when I decided to really step up my knowledge and understanding what values meant to a organization and I took an IEO class and so from that moment there was this clear clear distinction in language that could wrap around the values that are already there I didn't really land on unfiltered until I got, I felt empowered to use language to wrap what our body of work was. It was sort of like a very natural progression of our body of work was we're taking nude photos of bodies for a feminine care product uh, and putting on Instagram. And that was like very innovative at the time. Like people weren't doing that. They weren't putting nude bodies on Instagram because they were afraid they're going to get banned or their Instagram was getting shut down. But we did it anyway. You know, we shot creative for a gym in a construction site. It's like you usually sell gym memberships by showing off the gym. 
They were like, no, the gym, this is how the gym looks right now. But this is how you will look in the gym when it is open. And it was a very clear spin on, sure, this is space, but imagine you being dynamic like this person doing this kettlebell swing in this construction site. And so it was just us being true to what was around us and not pandering. And I knew that we were being honest with all of our ideas because I was there helping facilitate the art direction. And so when it was time to really wrap language around it, all of the pieces were there, like the body of work was there. I just need to come to terms with the right words and language that to define, define us with. And it was unfiltered and imaginative. Just hearing your story, I, I, I've been thinking about this idea of, of your own journey and how parallel that is with what you felt was missing in the market, what was happening in the market, how you were stepping into those that gap that you felt like was missing in a way of self-exploration. And I think this is a really actually important trend and dynamic to see about business is that the story and narrative around business at this point is that you can be this totally rational human being and who you are is not wrapped up in the success of the business. And more and more today, we're seeing how that that's just really not true, is that each person's history and biases and strengths and and weaknesses all come into play uh, in a way that's much more personal level than a lot of people will will allow for. And so it's this whole person uh, coming into the company to identify a gap in the market and what they can u- uniquely offer the world. Your your story is speaks really loudly to that. Thanks. Yeah. And I think if you're designing, when you're building a company, if you don't have the brand values, you'll track, you'll attract whomever and when you do set those brand values if you do that work to design the brand values that you want people to see in your company you'll attract those people you're speaking about you'll attract those people in your recruitment process who you'll just immediately get along with because their values align with the brand's values and so in your company's values and so when they do come aboard it's just that much more easier for them to be their whole self and be self-expressed because they're fully aligned with the brand values. And thus, your organization will just run way more fluid, way more efficiently because everyone's genuinely happy to be there. Tell me a little bit about what you think this means for the industry that you're in, you know, the marketing and advertising industry. Where do you think it's going? The advertising industry is an interesting space because People were just making so much money running their agencies. And I think we were all okay with it because the economy was okay with it. With organizations charging a 20% markup for every single thing they purchase for their production for a brand. To give you an example, how you break down agency fees are you you have your soft staffing fees, right? So number of people that will work on your project so if you need a you need to have three people working on a project and you need to make sure their staffing costs are being taken care of in your contract with whatever the brand is then whatever they go above it you charge an hourly rate that includes your agency's fee as well and so then there's the agency fee you're going to charge 20 percent on top of whatever those people are making. And then you're going to make sure you charge another 30% on top of their their fees to staff on that to make sure that their health insurance and taxes are taken care of. 
So you have all these fees and they haven't even paid for the project yet, right? The project could be set for a certain amount of hours for that month and a certain amount of deliverables could be set for that certain project or a certain amount of months. And if they go over it, they have the ability to charge 20% more on everything. And if you're producing, let's say, an event or a video series, you have the ability to charge like 20% up on all your rentals. So you're making money as an agency off of your rentals or you're making money off of all of the equipment you're renting for this production. And like as a business owner, you're like raking it in. You're like, cool, this sounds great. But on the other end of that, you know, the company's just burning money on your rental equipment. They're paying for your, like, they're paying 20% markup on things, money that they won't get back. There's no return on that investment for rentals. Um, they hope there is. And that's what they're paying you for is a return on the investment. And then for the consumer, that just drives the customer acquisition cost up for the consumer. So now you have big organizations, these big, you know, Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies being like, well, our customer acquisition costs are increasing. Um, so let's increase the budgets. Let's go get more money and figure out, you know, how to produce these things at the level they need to be produced on. And it's it's fine because everyone's making money and happy. And, you know, some people had great livelihoods and they're able to, like, change their legacy for their families forever. And some people who, you know, made it to the top and had upward mobility and got CMO status and creative director status, whatever, they're making good money. But what it does is, is it creates an unrealistic expectation on how much things cost to get things done, um, and which creates less money in the market or less opportunity in the market for creatives. And so I think what's happening now is you have all these lo-fi productions happening across the globe where I did, my, my producer in San Francisco, I work with a dem. He just sent me an Instagram post of American Idol doing home productions. American Idol is still happening right now, and they're mailing ring lights to talent to sing in front of their iPhones, in front of like Christmas lights hanging on their back wall. <laughs> so this is in response to COVID, right? Exactly. But, but the the lo-fi trend was happening before COVID. What do you think was driving that? Instagram and like the demand for content. Like people just needed more content fast. So it was just the quantity of content that was driving yeah. that rather than uh, a, a, a culture or lifestyle yeah. thing. Interesting. Okay. Right. And so, but there still was this lifestyle and culture thing around the idea of like high production value, everything, you know? So, which is fair in some cases, like it, there's just some cases where high production value is necessary. Like you don't want to watch a low budget film. Like if you don't have to... <laughs> You don't want to watch a high production value film. Maybe yeah, I mean, unless it's done well, right? You know, right. I have to yeah. say, I watched the South by Southwest shorts and those were phenomenal. And I don't think yeah. they were super high production. <laughs> totally. And that's, a, that's my point though, Lauren, is that is you have these creators who don't have access to the market, even though they have the ability to produce at a level that is 150K production value. And they're doing it for 10K, 20K. Because these big network agencies are just taking all this cash from, you know, inflating production costs because they can. And they're the ones just running the normalcy of traditional agencies and culture. Uh, they're taking away opportunities, I think, for creatives. Interesting. Are lo-fi. And I think that's the point I was trying to drill to earlier. Is that because there are network agencies, 
you know, again, creating these price points that are ridiculous into the roof and how they inflated creates a culture of we need to spend more on production to get more innovation and da 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 da. And like, that's not true. I think this pandemic is going to bring light on the fact that you could be having way more productions happening simultaneously with way more creatives simultaneously, creating way more opportunities and having way more content at the end of the day. You have the yeah. same result that you, a better result. You have more content. And more diversity of, of viewpoints and perspectives and stories to tell as well. Uh, because, yeah. you know, if you're, if you are kind of a black hole for the projects, just because that's how much it costs to engage you at a high production of, of what was in the past, uh, of course, you're going to dominate the the story and the the perspective that's being told uh, predominantly. Uh, but as soon as you start dispersing that around, there's a lot more storytelling to be done. And I think the you know that's probably also just a characteristic of the the technologies we're using before TV was uh, you know really highly produced, not lots of channels. You didn't really have a whole lot of airtime, so you had to focus on that highly produced, perfect right. first cut. But it's very different today. Right, nailed it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think that's really interesting. And I think for that reason, it makes sense why this will continue to be the norm post COVID. And also I think you're seeing with the technology, people are getting a lot more informed. Uh, they have act, not necessarily getting more informed, but they have access to more information to formalize their viewpoints in a way that is unique to them and not just, not just what's uh, immediately available in the mainstream. And so you have to respond to these people to really resonate. And I think that's a, a, a big challenge for a lot of brands and the industry generally is how do you do campaigns when you start increasingly um, targeted and, and yep. getting more micro in your audience? Yep, yep, yep. There's this wild prediction that Amazon's going to buy AMC, the movie theater uh, company, AMC Theaters. Yep. And Apparently they're like in talks and da 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 da, and so it's so smart because then that gives them just a whole new distribution channel for their films, and they get to be very niche with how they activate premieres locally. So it gives indie creators the capacity to to write stories that represent certain communities that Amazon has so much data on and can design a strategic rollout for this one indie production at all of their little AMC theaters. I read a, a Medium article that was really rich and it spoke to that very well, that, you know, theaters aren't done. People like to come together. They're just, it's going to be just a different experience. It's going to be more of an entertainment experience than just a theater, which I thought was like a lovely, like a, just like an amazing thought like it's so singular not just the the video but like when you come into the theater there are going to be like products and promotions and other related experiences to it oh you could shop for product amazon owns twitch so imagine gaming experiences being integrated to theaters where you can like all the twitch people can come together and like play and watch together physically i think there are there's going to be some real fun magic and uh, experiences to be designed from it. And obviously it won't be fast. It won't be in the next like year, but I think these are experiences that will definitely be integrated into society in the future. Mm. It's really interesting that this huge buyer of data, uh, you know, a lot of people, there's a lot of things that people take away from it, but that the idea that it's 
going to be able to make micro experiences and and support more niche perspectives and specific individual perspectives and experiences uh, at the movie theater level is something that I had not thought of. And, you know, of course, the whole point of data is to be able to be clearer about how your who your market is. But it's another thing when you're actually that is then driving to create a different platform for others' voices to be heard. Yeah. I mean, I think that was the point of Amazon Prime Videos when they opened it up to indie filmmakers. You know, anybody can put a film on Amazon Prime. And so that, that, that's the idea is for them to have a platform, which Netflix, you can't do that. And so I think there's, for all the negative things, there's this is like one or two positive that Amazon is doing. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, so how do you feel about that? Like, you know, it's like, there's a lot of trust. There's a lot of trust there of saying that they're going to come out and then use this data and uh, create this totally new platform for uh, new storytelling. And Yeah, I just think my entrepreneur brain pops on and it's like, oh, there's a lot of money to be made there. After that rant, I just went on about how agencies are like charging crazy margins on productions. Like every business has a place in the pocket for margins and, you know, they're just going to, they're going to design a way that they can have a nice little profit margin on AMC, you know, with their own films. And I could, I can see a couple of different ways that they can do that. Um, After reading the article that I did, and one of the ways was, again, just leveraging Twitch, like how can they make and make gaming arenas for these kids who are all playing Fortnite, all playing these different types of games and streaming on Twitch to physically come together and be with their peers. Like, that's huge. Kids already go to the movie theaters to hang out. (laughs) Like, it's already a thing that we all did. So how do you add another fundamental piece of, like, your adolescent culture to entertainment and experience you already are doing as an adolescent already? Like, going to the movies, you add gaming to it. And so I think there are just like these ways that they'll figure out how to make money and make sense of it. I always trust capitalists to be better capitalists. Yeah, and hopefully these opportunities are creating a different opportunity for that to take a different form, right? And that's that's how I'm looking at it is these are more opportunities for production companies, more opportunities for experiential producers, more opportunities for brand designers and art directors because hopefully there'll be more indie shops that come out of this that need marketing strategy and, you know, support with their premiere event. That's sort of what I'm drilling to is that hopefully that from this pandemic, it sort of decentralizes all these network agencies, it decentralizes, you know, certain industries from having their claws rooted in this crazy culture around overspending and, creates a more leveled out game for us all to have access to and money to have access to. And, and, uh, and by, by nature helps create more authentic, unfiltered stories and exactly. expression. Yeah. Coming exactly. full circle. <laughs> <laughs> I thought maybe just to kind of wrap up, curious to hear, you know, clearly your personal journey of growth and learning has been a big part in the work that you do and the contribution you make to the industry that you're in, what resources, whether it's books, courses, articles, do you recommend people check out for them to think about whether it's about how the industry works and what the dynamics are, or when thinking about authenticity and connecting with your audience uh, or just about the, the marketing and ad industries? Well, I would definitely recommend checking out that IDEO class I took. 
and it's reading for creativity. And it just shows you how to understand brand values and design them for projects and make it systematize that, that project management process. So when, if you're sprinting towards designing values for a campaign or for a company, it just helps you understand how to develop systems and facilitate that sort of work. And then if anyone's trying to figure out how to be a better CEO, always your name is Giva Wilkerson Traction. And that was one of my favorite books for, we were talking about this briefly earlier about designing systems for everything and numbers for all parts of your business. For the industry specifically, Run Studio Run by a studio owner. And it's a beautiful book. You could read it in like a day. If you're a freelancer considering becoming an agency owner, like making that leap, I'd recommend reading this book first so you can understand how to create systems for your agency. And then for the advertising industry, I think there's no better way to learn than just being around the humans in the industry, like finding journalists that you think have interesting POVs and following them on Twitter and really just soaking up the knowledge they have, reading all their articles, reading their tweets and perspective, like just really trying to get a sense. And then befriending people who own agencies and run and operate shops that you admire um, and just picking their brains because if you can have an opportunity to sit with someone who runs a shop, do it. And they're all usually down to earth and cool. And just to plug for you here, the the Freelancer Summit you held recently, uh, I think you said you were going to do some more content for that. Yeah, so the Freelancer Cyber Summit is a community rooted in learning what the fuck is going on in the advertising industry now and the future. And our role is to just continue to connect the freelancers to each other and to the industry itself while being a platform for like education and getting them back on their feet. So, and when I mean back on their feet, it's like getting them to a space where they feel like they can thrive with a livelihood that feels good for them because we're never going to be at the place that we, we were, but we'll be able to get to a space where we can feel good now. And that's sort of our goal and vision. And so, yeah, freelancercybersummit.com. That's where you can find the recap video. We have cool upcoming events. Um, we have some stuff on recruiting. We have some stuff on hustling specifically. And then we have... Um, some fun new sort of programming we're designing that's sort of innovative for the virtual space today that I can't share yet. Um, <laughs> but yeah, in the cyber, Freelancer Cyber Summit, you can uh, check it out. Awesome. I think those are some good suggestions. Uh, it was really great chatting with you, Nate, and uh, interesting to hear your thoughts about where things are going and learning a little bit about things that I had no clue about, like Amazon getting into cinema. (laughs) So thanks for chatting, Nate. It was great to catch up with you. You too, dude. Thanks for listening to Greater Than. Show notes are available on the podcast page on our website, wearewhole.co. That's w-h-o-l-e.co. If you enjoyed this conversation, leave a review where you stream your podcast and share it with others who might like it too. 